I am recording this for my own purposes, but uh, you don't have to worry about any questions or comments or things like that ending up anywhere but my device here. So let your, let your questions run wild. Um, do what thou wilt shall be the whole below. Thank you. Wow. Um, thank you for getting up. I know how Friday nights go. And I just want to thank you just simply for getting up. Even if you didn't come here to hear this. Um, I want to start by telling you my Minerval story, or let's say one Minerval story, um, because I think it, uh, it's instructive in one of the central points I'm trying to make today. So this was East Chicago, November 1993, and I had driven up with some friends from uh, down in central Indiana where I was living. So several hours in the cold, into the snowy, horrible part of town, <laughs> and um, this wasn't the, really the actual where the body was actually located, but it was where it was being hosted. And um, this uh, led out of the car through the snowy streets in this terrible neighborhood to this this kind of bombed out warehouse. And um, welcome. There's seats up in front which means you get to volunteer for it. Um, so I'm in the, the warehouse and we're being sequestered before being called in. I end up in something that could best be described as a slightly large-ish broom closet with three other um, victims and some items, namely uh, a uh, a statue of Baphomet, and a Jesus candle. <laughs> you know, after a few hours of that, that was an initiation of it. Of it. So, <laughs> the glow of the Jesus candle. Um, but of course, as you do, we bonded, my litter mates and I, you know, we were talking. Um, when all was said and done that weekend, I came away after meeting everyone, I also attended my first mass that weekend, ever, um, on the occasion of my Minerva. I came away with a pretty amazing sense of these people. Uh, you know, probably in everyday life, going out in, in the mundane world, maybe one person in a hundred strikes you, I'm, I'm just guessing on the numbers, but for me it's about one in a hundred people that I meet strike me as just, a, they blow me away. You know, there's someone who's just being themselves so fully and joyously and is so good at what they do and is just uh, full of life and, and will. And I came away from that Minerva weekend realizing that every single person I'd met at that event was one of those people. And I've spent my entire adult life in OTO and I actually don't know what it's like to be an adult and not be an OTO. And it's never stopped being true. Like this room right now, like this whole weekend, each one of you is like one of those people that just blows me away. And that is a great gift for us as an order. But it's also the way that we promulgate. 
And that is essentially the central theme of today, that the best way to spread the law in the world is simply for you to go out and live your will. Be yourself as strongly, vibrantly, joyously, efficiently as you possibly can. And there is no better way to show the world what Thelema can do, what Thelema is. We're going to talk about some specific ways to, to work that, to understand it, break it down a little bit in different ways you can live this out. But the central thing I'm trying to say to you today is going to end up being be yourself loudly and joyously and uh, you'll not only be serving your will, you'll be serving humanity by being out there and being a beacon. Won't hurt the order either because you'll be the face. You know. Um, there's a saying which I've, some of you may have heard me talk about before where uh, in, in alchemy they say to uh, to make gold, it takes gold. And in human terms, what we're talking about here is that when you encounter one of these folks in life, when you meet each other in the hallway, out there in our case, isn't that awesome? Um, something in them has a corresponding resonance in you. You see some light in them that's, that's only their light, but it's also something universal. And then uh, the way I hope you experience it, I think most of us do, is that something comes alive in us in a different and unique way from meeting that person. But it's ours. And it's also universal. Their gold is helping us make gold. Their inspiration is aiding us in fulfilling our own will and discovering our own, our own will. So you're going out there to let your gold be visible and let it be contagious. It's a spiritual contagion. Um, so, interestingly, it seems to me that the same things that make the Lima a great spiritual tradition, and in fact, give it a lot in common with other spiritual traditions, also are the things that aid us in living our will, not just publicly, but privately as well. Uh, the things that make effective promulgation tools, uh, the things that give the Lima heart and wisdom and community and transformative power as a system, as a tradition, are the tools you can use to discover and live out your will. Now, um, I, I, when I give a talk, uh, a public talk in some places about the... Uh, the nature of Thelema, when people are really new to it and they don't have any idea what Thelema is, and I, I try to approach it like, look, here's what religions have, here's what great spiritual traditions have, and we've got these same things. People who tend to be confused by all the media portrayals of Crowley and that sort of thing. So I talk about things like, we have a system that values mystical linkage to the divine. Um, we have a scripture. We have founding myths and, and, and symbolic allegories around what we do. We have, of course, a tradition and a path and a structure with tools and methods of transformation. We have devotion, love, ecstasy in our work. We have the value of, uh, we value self-knowledge, self-discovery, and we value community. Now, all of these can be neatly bundled, thanks to Crowley, uh, in Light, life, love, and liberty springing forth from law. 
this is the central thesis of his De Legge Labellum. If you haven't read that, you should. And that's how I'm going to kind of structure the rest of my remarks today. We'll talk about each of these four things, not just in terms of how it uh, manifests in our tradition, but then how do you carry that out into the world and manifest that in your living. And once again, it'll be a fact that uh, <clears throat> the way you carry each of these four principles out into the world is not only service to your will, but it's also a great way to get the word out uh, and to demonstrate what living philema really means. So light. Our system teaches the importance of a connection to the spiritual source within, right? That's fundamental. However, that's couched. We're saying you must have a, an inner link. And in fact, you do by birth have an inner link and uh, a spiritual link. And your task is more about making that conscious, making that as um, repeatable and sustainable and conscious and uh, vivid, vibrant in your everyday life as possible. Um, Jung would say that's the ego self axis. Your conscious waking personality mind needs to be tapped into the self. The ego needs to have that well dug down into the, the deeper, truer self. Um, he says something that I, I came across this quote not too long ago, and I can't believe that I had never seen it before. Jung says, as far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. The sole purpose, says Jung, is to kindle a light. And um, we have to each individually strive to do that, but our community also has to do that. The Lima as a tradition has to do, to do that via um, the holy books, the, the current, actual current of the Lima that flows into our work. Um, we have the, the, the tools of magic and mysticism and the, the fruits of those tools, the fruits of using those tools. All of these things kindle that light. Nourish it. Like you're literally... Uh, keeping a flame alive. The, in other words, uh, the building relationship to the Holy Guardian Angel as an intimate tending of a flame within each of us. And as each of us does that vibrantly and consciously and intentionally and as often as possible in our daily lives, we spread that, that current, that flame out into the world. Um, this is also the aspect of the tradition that values self-knowledge because we know ourselves when we shine light on ourselves, when we examine ourselves. And when the light of self-knowledge shines on us, we are nourishing that, that core light of the, uh, the eternal that's within a little more young for you. And here's another one I just love and found recently. Because it's basically his, his, uh, his statement of the value of uh, scientific illuminism. That religious experiences exist no longer needs proof. 
but it will always remain doubtful whether what metaphysics and theology call God and the gods is the real ground of these experiences. The question is idle, actually, and answers itself by reason of the subjectively overwhelming numinosity of the experience. Anyone who has had it is seized by it, and therefore not in a position to indulge in fruitless metaphysical or epistemological <laughs> speculations. <laughs> Absolute certainty brings its own evidence, and has no need of anthropomorphic proofs. Jeez. Jeez, Carl. Um, I mean, if you read that and I said it was Crowley, would you... You'd, you'd buy it, right? Um, so that light of self-knowledge uh, that kindles religious experience is so fundamental. Uh, you live this out by, you know, this is certainty, not faith, right? You live this out by going out into the world and not trying to convert people, not trying to insist that your experience of the divine is the way to experience the divine, not trying to insist that the way you discovered that experience is the way to do it. But, as we do in, in lots of traditions, we give tools and we say, try these, some might work, some might not. I've been touched by these in certain ways, I hope you will be too. Have a nice day. You know? and your certainty, your inner certainty, based on actual experience and not based on dogma, doctrine, uh, hit them over the head with the book kind of approaches, will be contagious. So, so far we've talked about light, and I want to pause here and see, let's see guys, there's, there's a couple chairs, there's a couple chairs in front over here, I think, and there's the floor. So we've talked about light so far, just brief recap, light, life, love, and liberty as a model, we're on light so far. Anybody have anything to add to that? What for you, as you go through your world, is something that keeps that light burning for you? Gnostic mass. Gnostic mass, okay. What works? Running. Running. Very nice. And the encouragement of the local community. The, you said the encouragement of the local community? Where we light up each other, just yeah. the interaction of the dialogue and the audience. Okay, so just... Uh, Sort of like if you have lots of flames and you bring them together, they all are more guaranteed to stay aflame, right? And, and burn hotter. And, uh, good. Children. Children? Okay. Daily meditation. Yoga right. ritual. So, right. Daily practice that, that uh, stills the mind and gives some space for the flame to, to happen, right? And we could probably list hundreds of these if everyone just reflected on what makes you feel connected. And when you have one of those days where you're really feeling that and living that, uh, people are going to see that sparkle in your eyes and respond to you in ways that will be transformative for both of you. So it's truly, truly contagious. Um, let's move on to love. I'm sorry, life. Um, we have a lot of teachings in our tradition about how to live, not surprisingly. Um, and one of the most important is a full and joyous embracing of life itself as a sacred thing. Human life, 
human existence as a sacred thing. This is, as you know, not a dualistic philosophy where heaven is good and the earth and the human body are bad. It's a tradition where we live our life as an act of worship, potentially, in every moment, when we embrace the sacredness of every moment. This is the worship of Nuit. Um, and it, we'll talk more about love and devotion, but this is just living. When you take the reality that's right in front of you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you take the reality that's right in front of you, no matter what it is, no matter whether your ego is liking it or not, and you embrace it as the perfect thing, the perfect creation of Nuit, right, in that moment, or an aspect of Nuit you're discovering, that Hadith moment that you represent, encountering Nuit and, and letting that be an ecstatic moment. That's just a long-winded way of saying heaven is every single moment, right? That is what life is about. Um, another way of thinking of this is that the purpose of humanity is to be the sense organs of the universe. That we are like flowers that grow up and reach toward the sun and experience it. And if we weren't doing that, the universe wouldn't be experiencing itself in quite uh, the same degree of richness and vibrancy that we can provide by being alive. So our act of living is not just worship, but is participation in, in the, the same creative, ongoing, uh, unfolding, universal act. And we're all a part of that in every moment. In a more practical sense, we have physical things we do in our lives that are taught in the tradition and that honor the life, the, the, the living out of things, uh, like physical traditional rituals. Um, the Gnostic Mass was mentioned. This could fall in this category, too. When you're doing your, your daily vanishings, your star sapphires, your, your, uh, your other personal work, especially things that are unique to the Thelemic tradition, you are reaffirming that that has a place in your life. You, uh, you know, if, we, if we've learned anything from behavioral psychology, it's that when you see yourself doing stuff, you conclude that it's valuable. You know, so cognitive behavior, because um, we don't like to spend a lot of time doing stuff and also at the same time be telling ourselves that it's worthless. Cognitive dissonance theory would suggest that we either stop doing those things or we decide they're valuable. And that's why politicians have a hard time. <laughs> I'm spending all day and all night doing this shit. It must be valuable. I must be worth it. Um, so, uh, in your choices about daily traditional ritual. Um, and when I say traditional ritual, what I'm trying to mean is rituals born out of our tradition, uh, a specific sort of tactical use of that. Um, that's an embracing of life, too. Um, living this out in the world, when we attend to the health of our physical bodies, of course. When we... Um, it, it's a cliche, of course, but the, the body as a temple idea. You know, This is exactly how we honor the spirit manifesting in life itself. 
what else? What do you do that nurtures your existence physically, that, that feeds your life in these kinds of ways? Anything come to mind? We've heard some, some comments that already kind of fit in here, like I've heard running, and uh, child-rearing was another one. Did you say holding your bunny? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say petting my cat. Bunny therapy, cat therapy. That's a great, actually those, those comments made me realize I, that, that that's a whole other thing that could be on my list of what life can be about, the relationship, um, the, the way that those kinds of connections with people and things can be themselves um, life-giving. Hope we've all experienced that. Yoga and pranayama practice, physical right. yoga mm -hmm. and pranayama. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably bridges into the cultivation of the light too, you know, because you're, uh, you're getting the energy flowing. Yeah. Always learning. Okay. Always learning something new. Turns out the only thing we learn from is the unknown, right? Learn it if you already know it. So, um, so what that means is we have to seek out the unknown. And what's that mean? That means always learning. So, right back around. Uh, but you want to say more about how you experienced that? Always learning. Um, I'm actually in culinary school right now, uh, and so just always learning something new, even if it's just a new technique on how to do something different, hmm. how to how to cook a tomato sauce a different way to make it taste better or taste slightly different. But always learning just that slightly new thing. I had a chef who actually said, if I stop learning, bury me. <laughs> um, it, it does keep us alive, doesn't it? It actually does. Uh, because I was having a discussion that just remembered this. Don't you hate it when you have an amazing discussion and then you forget that you had it? But uh, it's a few weeks ago and the discussion could be described under the heading of how do you know when something's alive? What are the characteristics of a living thing? And so we decided we were going to start a, a correspondence where every time we think of a new characteristic of something that, that helps us know it's alive, we'd email each other. You know? and, but the ones we generated over that particular set of margaritas was... Um, <laughs> um, Motion, movement, uh, activity. It's not static. I, unless something's frozen, you know, I, I think we could say that a characteristic of life is that it's not motionless. There's something happening there. So when, when we have a life where we've closed down that capacity for learning and that eagerness, hunger for learning, the, and actually making ourselves do it uh, as often as we can, then we're a motionless thing in some ways. And that doesn't serve us, obviously. So, but to learn from the unknown, since we only learn from the unknown, what that means is that we're always having to confront unfamiliarity, which puts us outside our comfort zone because we're used to wanting things in boxes, you know, to know where everything is. So the good news, I bring you the good news. <laughs> Whenever you have an experience where the, the inner the inner uh, dialogue is something along the lines of, oh shit, <laughs> you're learning. <laughs> it's impossible for you not to be learning in that way. <laughs>
That makes it easier to embrace, maybe. Still won't like it, but you can embrace it. Okay, so let's move on to love. So we have millennia of tantric traditions that teach us uh, how to experience the universe, how to be a, a vessel for the universe to experience ecstasy, to experience the tantra, the, the weaving or the web of all life through our own experience. The Lima is an inherently tantric tradition as it stands. I get a little surprised that people bother to try to superimpose uh, other traditional terms and processes onto the Thelemic tradition and say, this is Thelemic Tantra, when Thelema is Thelemic Tantra. <laughs> yeah. We have, uh, and when I talk about sex magic, this is a lot of how I describe it, that, that we've got a system where we can already connect to, we've got these uh, avatars of inner experience, of inner ecstatic experience that we build and strengthen through uh, ritual, through through daily practice, through devotional techniques, through energetic techniques, we start to pair the ideas of these inner opposites with our inner energetic condition and then allow that to, to be an ecstatic experience as they court each other and eventually unite. Um, and that's built into our tradition. The pantheon and the book of the law is there as a way to connect with that. But anyway, we're tantric. And uh, our tradition teaches us how to open ourselves up to the love of all things, to experience that as one form of that worship that we were discussing earlier, embracing of life. Uh, no form of love, and importantly, no experience of love is forbidden. If you're experiencing love, it doesn't matter how that happens. There's no basis for negative judgment as long as your actions are maximally in accord with your will and aren't impeding someone else's, right? So, isn't it wonderful to have a tradition that, that actually, we'll get to liberty in a second, but gives us the freedom to, to experience love as we will. If you love stapling things, <laughs> you're gonna be the best damn stapler the world has ever seen. And if that, that can be your, your bhakti right there. Um, didn't think I'd go there, but I did. <laughs> um, we, can, we can get some help from our friend Wilhelm Reich, uh, who many of you have probably encountered, a psychiatrist, uh, in, in understanding the nature of love and the dangers of restricting love and sex sex force, life force. Um, how many of you feel fairly familiar with Reich? Okay. Reich was a student of Freud originally. And um, fairly early on, he broke off and uh, sort of go, started going his own way because what he was discovering, as his, his own personal theory unfolded, is that what Freud was talking about in terms of uh, purely psychological uh, manifestations of repression and, and uh, the, the psychodynamics of the, of the inner life. Reich thought, wait a minute, this, this really, if we have some inner psychological defenses, what if they started to manifest outward in our body? Like 
our body started listening to our inner life and said, you know what, I'm in danger, so I'm going to walk like this, or stand like this, um, or um, I'm feeling uh, aloof and above life, so I'm going to look down on it like this. <laughs> so he started looking at posture and uh, what he called muscular uh, armor, um, body armoring. He, he looked at neurosis as something where you go from the inside, the outside in and say, what's the body doing? What does that reveal about what the mind's doing? And, and you work on it from the outside in too. But one of the things that he managed to accomplish in this um, course of study was to recognize that the most destructive thing he had ever found in terms of what makes people healthy or not healthy is the repression of the sex instinct. Um, the damming up of the flow of life force. So essentially he is approaching the concept that we might call Kundalini uh, or other terms like that um, from a psychological, Western psychological point of view. I don't think he would have thought of it as connected to... to or, uh, I don't know if he, if he would agree with my characterization right there, but it seems to me that's what he was getting at. Um, so he worked on the energetic system in the body and so on, but the... the um, the main point I'm trying to make with this is that here's a corroboration of the idea that the way to be healthy is to let love flow unimpeded through your life and your body and your mind and your heart. And when you do anything that impedes that flow, you're wounding yourself somehow. You're, or at least you're, you're, uh, you're limiting your health. So a science of, good uh, Kundalini science, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Interesting, uh, interestingly, Reich did not have a happy ending. Um, no, I didn't intend that as a pun when I... <laughs> um, Freud. <laughs> but uh, he, when he got a, a little more out there later in his life, he, um, he got pretty concrete with the idea that you could contain this life energy with physical objects made in certain ways. So he developed this, we called the Orgone Box. Orgone was his name for the energy. And it had uh, different layers in the walls that um, had different properties that were designed to hold in the Orgone energy. So the idea was the healing process was to sit in this box for a certain amount of time, and uh, this was designed to heal. So it uh, turns out the FDA was concerned about this theory of cure uh, and charging for it. So um, that linked with the fact that he was a former member of the Communist Party meant that in 1956-ish, the FDA, the FDA confiscated all the books of Reich that they could find it was supposed to just be the books on the Orgone accumulator itself. But they ended up confiscating and burning any books by Reich that they could find in many cases and sent him to prison. So this guy, who, whose crime was basically, at worst, quack science, um, and at best, something much more, uh, dies in prison, 1957, I believe. So it's certainly a cautionary tale about the communist hunting uh, and, and similar things that we see in today's world. 
Um, how do we live this out? Well, I bring the good news. Love things. I have lots of sex. Have you seen uh, Little Miss Sunshine? Okay. That scene with the grandpa? Was... Um, if I have one piece of advice. Uh, love, love how you will, when you will, with whom you will, to paraphrase. Uh, Reich also says that love is the absence of anxiety. Isn't that interesting? Love is the absence of anxiety. Now, if we understand anxiety to be, in a technical way, any moment where we're more focused on something in the past or the future than the present, we can understand that love is the absence of anxiety means that we're not embracing the present moment. In other words, we are detached from that possibility of ecstasy, of ecstatic union with the reality that's presented to us. We're not worshiping the weed in that moment. Instead, we're saying, did I do okay? That's past. Or we're saying, I don't know if I can handle this next week, and that's the future, and we're not in the moment. So anytime, we're anx anytime you're anxious, and this is a, a way to worship, anytime you're anxious, ask yourself, is your head in the past or the future? And if in that moment you can bring it back to that moment, I would venture to say it's impossible for you to be anxious. Uh, the Buddhists talk about suffering as root, being rooted in fear or desire, both of which take us out of the present moment. How can we be afraid of something that isn't in this moment? You know, I suppose if a train is coming toward you, or a tiger, <laughs> that the fear is a natural loving manifestation of that moment. <laughs> uh, an embracing of the danger of the train. Uh, but other than something like that, if you're afraid, you're worried about some consequence of a past thing or some threatened future thing, right? Um, and if you're desiring something, you're saying you don't have it. It's by definition separation and, and duality. You're pushing away the opportunity to have what you actually have at that moment. And saying, no, I need this other thing, which even if that puts you three milliseconds later, it puts you later. So anyway, enough riffing on anxiety, but uh, our communities give us another opportunity for love, to live love out in the world, to bond with each other like we're doing this weekend, to uh, to share our common rituals, the Gnostic Mass, to share our uh, initiatory system, um, to share in a broader sense with people who aren't even initiates of the order all of the things that are a binding force in the Thelemic tradition. Our holy books, our uh, feasts, etc. So, how about love? What do you do for love that I haven't already mentioned? What I did for love. <laughs> Since we talked about, about the fear thing a bit, this might be kind of a personal experience. Mm. But, um, in loving fear, it's a very unique experience of surfing. Larry Hamilton was one who said that that fear is what makes him feel the most alive and the most focused in that moment, but it's not the anxiety of just running from the fear, it's deciding this is a moment of fear mm. and then embracing that with the same love. That, yeah. yeah, that's a great example. And, and 
you know, any sort of adrenaline pumping moment that we seek out like that would have similar characteristics. And, you know, some of you probably know this, but physiologically, um, what what our body is feeling in a moment we're labeling as a fearful moment is pretty much exactly what the body is doing in a moment where we're all excited about something whether that's experienced positively or negatively tends to be the label we put on it and the situation we're in. If we're in something that we're labeling as a no-shit situation, we're going to be more likely to experience that as, as um, a bad thing that we should be afraid of. Uh, but we don't have to. That's a great example. Yeah? yeah on a, a similar vein, uh, there's a, a, a quote about skydiving, which is, you know, the skydiver's talking to his instructor about you know, how, how long do I have to pull the ripcord? And the instructor says, the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should have a footnote to this presentation that says, <laughs> loving embrace of the moment doesn't necessarily mean embracing the ground as you know, <laughs> not pulling the ripcord. But I'm going to use that quote. <laughs> Okay. We feed people. So, you mean literally? Yes. I mean, that's well, clearly one example. Like, yeah. Yeah. Every one of our rituals has some feast associated with it somewhere, somehow. Right. And cooking, you know, the Jewish mom would think, eat, 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 eat. Green them. Taking them. Taking them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you speaking from personal experience? <laughs> So, service, uh, comfort, right, right. I think an important aspect of externalizing love is to self-love first, because mm. you can't project love if you're like I saw. That's one way of damming it up. You know, um, if if we're a hollow tube of love. <laughs> I can stand here Facebook. If we are a hollow tube of love and we say but this tube doesn't deserve love. I really want to love you, but I don't. You know, what we're essentially doing is not letting the flow happen, right? We're, we're, we're damming it up. We're, we're not allowing ourselves to be a container of it. And I, th- I think that's probably an unnecessarily long-winded way of saying what you said very simply. <laughs> that uh, we have to start with loving ourselves and, and uh, accepting ourselves, embracing in a worshipful, nuit-like way who we are exactly who we are, all that we are. Um, A smart person once gave an analogy for this sort of thing, um, that it's like finding your place on a map. If if you want to get somewhere and you don't accept where you actually are on the map, (laughs) you're going to have trouble. (laughs) So there's often an objection to this idea of uh, embracing the perfection of the reality 
in front of you, as if that means you can't then decide to change something. Like you're, you're somehow abdicating the, the will to make some tweaks in your life. You know? But no, it's not that. It's about finding your place on the map. If we're in denial about that, we don't know what the raw material for change is. That's why repression of our own self-knowledge and not accepting parts of ourselves and such is such a blind to further progress. And we, that's why we teach about projections and self-study uh, you know, through for the diary and all of that. Um, okay. Great comments. Thank you. Let's move on, finally, to liberty. If we are a hollow tube of liberty... <laughs> See how long I can work that one. Um, pretty clearly, the doctrine of will is a doctrine of personal liberty, right? It's one of the probably main reasons that all of us vibe with this tradition. Um, reconnecting this with Reich, we have a, uh, a sense coming from Reich's writings that. He identified repression, especially sex repression, as one of the great causes of all societal ills. Perhaps he could be guilty of overstating that, but he felt very strongly that the neurosis of society was generated by sex repression, culturally. And that results in individual illness when we start to take that repression to heart and we decide, oh, that's right, I really... This feeling I'm having is bad. You know? um, and we've had an awful lot of help from Judeo-Christian traditions for several thousand years in uh, feeling like what we're feeling is bad. So we need to break, break free of that. Philema gives us a, a ticket out. Um, when we have freedom to follow our true will, we are naturally moral, but not moralistic. The doctrine of true will, to my reading and my experience, implies that when you tap into self, connect to HGA, however you want to think of it, uh, God, again, we don't, you don't need uh, terms, you just need experience. Um, when we connect to that and live our will out freely, um, it's a deep conscience. We make choices based on what we know feels right to us. And uh, we can't do that if we have a pre-digested set of things that are okay and things that are not okay. This is the great crime of, of all most other traditions and cultures in history, is that it's all boxed up about what's okay and what's not. So naturally, we start to go, okay, that's feeling bad, thought bad, experience bad, body bad. But listen to what Reich says, and I, he sort of mentions light, life, love, and liberty, not by those names, sometimes by those names in this statement, but it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. Um, you'll have a good, secure life when being alive means more to you than security. I'm going to start that one over. You'll have a good, secure life when being alive means more to you than security. Love more than money. Your freedom 
more than public or partisan opinion. When the mood of Beethoven's or Bach's music becomes the mood of your whole life. Sounds like love. Light. When your thinking is in harmony and no longer in conflict with your feelings. When you let yourself be guided by the thoughts of great sages and no longer by the crimes of great warriors. When you pay the men and women who teach your children better than the politicians. <laughs> when truths inspire you and empty formulas repel you. That last one. When truths inspire you and empty formulas repel you. So your truth sense gets refined and you start to call the BS when you see it. So isn't that a great quote? I just, just love that. I should read that every day. Pardon? So the TSA wouldn't like that. Right. <laughs> um, so... This is definitely one of those ways. When we go out into the world and we live freely and we make choices that demonstrate our freedom, that's really contagious. When you see someone who has obviously made choices that weren't easy, that honor their freedom and honor their selfhood in the face of repression, in the face of opposition, uh, that's inspiring, right? We see that. And when you do that, you'll be inspiring. And so that's yet another way that we've seen in every single category we've talked about today that service to your true will is always service to all of humanity, by definition. We're not navel-gazers for its own sake. Well, that's quite fun. The point is we create a more harmonious and efficient and loving and free and joyous world when we do it. So, uh, I want to uh, I want to give you a, a a tool that I think may help you in your day to day life. Just kind of a, a a filter for experience and keeping track of what you're doing day to day um, in a fairly practical way. That will it's designed to give you um, like a a measure of how well you're doing at being a pentagram every day. We've got the law and then light, life, love, and liberty springing from it, and these can be attributed to the four elements in spirit. Right? Um, so if you undertake mindfully to live every day as a balanced microcosm, uh, you'll find, I think, that uh, you're more successful in doing so. Like any mindfulness task, when we decide to pay attention to something, we tend to do better at whatever it is we're trying to do. Um, keeping a, a food log makes you make better choices about food. Let's keep, keep a liberty log. Keep a, a love log. You know, how did you do on, on uh, that dimension during your day? And you'll do better at it. So, make a little code for yourself. What I often do is, um, just in my daily diary, it will have uh, S for spirit, F for fire, W for water, A for air, and E for earth. So each day can have a little code entry, where on a one to 10 scale, 
at the end of the day, I sort of make a note about how I feel like I did on each of these dimensions. And for me, I tend to use, I tend to think about it this way in terms of what each element means. For Earth, uh, this basically will follow the elemental attributions of the Golden Dawn type systems where, for example, you have Eric, Yisod, and Wander, and Hoth, and so on. So for Earth and Malkuth, um, how well did I care for the physical body today? How was my diet, exercise, sleep, sex, ritual, uh, etc.? One to ten. That's the E. Uh, for Air and Yesod, how attentive was I to intuition, to dreams, to um, flashes of insight about things, to synchronicities? In other words, looking at Air and Yesod is that mirror in the subconscious where the light of Tefereth shines and gives us clues as we move toward the <coughs> conscious connection with the angel. So that's the A. How well did I do on that? One to ten. One to eleven, okay. Um, for water and hode, how was my mental clarity today, mental precision? Um, how did I do in terms of encouraging myself to learn new things, undertake new intellectual tasks, reading, teaching? Etc. That's your A, your, your W for water. Um, for fire and Netsak, how well did I do today in kindling aspiration in myself and feeling love and devotion flow, whether that's a experienced or intentionally as a worshipful task or simply as an embracing of life? Um, how well did I love today? That's fire. And then finally for spirit, um, how well did I maintain receptivity to divine influence? How effective was I at keeping my head tuned into the right frequency to hear the voice of the angel, using that metaphor? I've often talked about the path toward knowledge and conversation in terms of tuning in the radio, right? I realized some time ago that I, I have to stop using certain aspects of this metaphor because when I talk about it, I'm always doing this like I'm turning a radio dial. <laughs> and pretty soon there's going to be a room full of people that have never, ever, once in their life, turned a radio dial. Um, so yeah, it's like a dialing phone, right? Um, but the idea is the same. You have to, I'm sure we'll always be trying to tune into something. Please tell me I can keep this metaphor in a minute. <laughs> Learn a new one. Um, I'm afraid of the unknown. <laughs> but I'm learning things. But the idea is you, you have to get better at finding the right radio station. It's always broadcasting. Your angel is always whispering in your ear. You just have to learn how to listen better. It's not a journey to some place that you're not already. It is not a journey to an angel that isn't with you. It is not cultivating a, a faculty in yourself that isn't already present. It's just a process of refinement and finding a way to stay tuned in to that station. So that's what I mean by this receptivity uh, to spirit. How well did you get your head in the right place uh, to really hear it? In Libra 65, chapter 2, Crowley says, To await thee is the end, not the beginning. So we do.
I'm going to leave you with uh, a quote from De La Bellum, which is, again, is where a lot of this structure came from today. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite books, too. <laughs> what if they figured out that we were responding to them? <laughs> and then they started. Um, okay. In righteousness of heart, come hither and listen. For it is I, Tomegatherian, who give this law unto everyone that hold him, holdeth himself holy. It is I, not another, that willeth your whole freedom and the arising within you of full knowledge and power. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you, even as the sun standeth eternal in the heavens, equal at midnight and at noon. He riseth not, he setteth not. It is but the shadow of the earth which concealeth him, or the clouds upon her face. Let me then declare unto you the mystery, this mystery of the law, as it hath been made known unto me in diverse places, upon the mountains and in the deserts, but also in great cities, which thing I speak for your comfort and good courage. And so be it unto all of you. Know first that from the law spring forth four rays or emanations, so that if the law be center of your own being, they must needs fill you with their secret goodness. And these four are light, life, love, and liberty. By light shall you look upon yourselves, and behold all things which are in truth one thing only, whose name hath been called no thing for a cause which later shall be declared unto you. But the substance of light is life, since without existence and energy it were not. By life, therefore, are you made yourselves eternal and incorruptible, flaming forth as suns, self-created and self-supported, each the sole center of the universe. Now by the light ye beheld, by love ye feel. There is an ecstasy of pure knowledge, and another of pure love, and this love is the force that uniteth things diverse for the contemplation and light of their oneness. Know that the universe is not at rest, but in extreme motion, whose sun is rest. And this understanding that stability is change, and change stability, that being is becoming, and becoming being, is the key to the golden palace of this law. Lastly, by liberty is the power to direct your course according to your will. For the extent of the universe is without bounds, and ye are free to make your pleasure as ye will, seeing that the diversity of being is infinite also. For this also is the joy of the law, that no two stars are alike, and ye must understand also that this multiplicity is itself unity, and without it unity could not be. And this is a hard saying against reason. Ye shall comprehend when, rising above reason, which is but a manipulation of the mind, ye come to pure knowledge by direct perception of the truth. Know also that these four emanations of the law flame forth upon all paths. Ye shall use them not only in these highways of the universe whereof I have written, but in every bypath of your daily life. Love is the law, love unto all. <laughs>